So the first reading is from uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. Verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Well, good morning. I got a call about this time yesterday from Jamie, uh, rather sheepishly telling me that he has COVID. So that's fine. Here we are. Uh, the last time I got a call from Jamie was about a month ago. We'd just gone on holidays, and he called to say that, uh, actually, your daughter's a close contact from youth camp, so that was the end of the holidays. I'm probably going to block his number. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it was a uh, pleasure to be here, genuinely. Uh, greetings from you, the brothers and sisters in the Church of Tonsley. I mean, it's hypothetical. They, most of them don't know I'm here, but they would send greetings. Uh, most of you know me, uh, I've been, uh, my wife Joanne and our family have been at Tonsley over the last few months. Um, we have uh, many years of history here at Colonel Light Gardens and it's, it's fabulous to be, uh, to be visiting again and seeing just a, a thriving group of people here. Uh, it is genuinely exciting to see. Um, over the school holidays uh, a few weeks back, uh, our kids had a few sleepovers uh, with grandparents as, as they often do during the uh, holidays. And so Joanne and I, uh, we took the opportunity to go out and catch a movie at the cinema. That's the whole story, I'm just showing off that we went to the movies. Uh, all those parents. Uh, no, we saw a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, now, I'm going to highlight from the outset, um, this movie isn't going to be to everyone's taste. But it's, it's an absurdist take on nihilism, uh, where Evelyn... Uh, and a completely unremarkable Chinese-American immigrant. Uh, she runs a laundromat. She falls afoul of the tax office. She's uh, lots of relational dynamics and difficulties with her, her father and her husband and her daughter. And she also gets in touch with all the alternate versions of herself from all the different parallel dimensions. Uh, so it's clearly a little bit wacky. Um, now, I'm not going to offer any spoilers for if you are going to go watch it, um, but basically through a series of fairly bizarre events, the end result is basically about the value of loving your family and making peace with the life that you have. Now, that's great. That's all well and good. But the problem is that the conclusion doesn't come from any particular source of meaning other than complete nihilism. Like the conclusion that, that nothing actually matters... And there is no meaning. So we've just got to make the most of what we have. Now, I really like this movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, it has a positive conclusion. But that road it takes to get there, it's completely at odds with the Christian worldview, isn't it? And I can't help but wonder that if your source of meaning in life is derived from the conclusion that there is no meaning, surely it's destined to fail for lack of a firm foundation. Uh, so with that in mind, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus this morning. And just to put us on the right path, there's a couple of questions to think about. 
what's the, act- the, what's the resurrection actually good for? Like, like, why does it matter? And what difference does it make to our lives now? I think if I took uh, answers from the congregation, I suspect I'd probably get quite a few different perspectives on those questions. Because uh, resurrection, it genuinely is a very big topic. And, I mean, it's enormous enough to warrant an entire series of sermons rather than just any sort of a once-off. Um, and every time you hear the resurrection pre- preached on, you'll probably hear different perspectives because there's all these different elements. But there's just a few that we're going to be touching on today. Uh, now, unfortunately, we have had a bit of a habit, uh, and I say we as in broadly the Western Church for the last few hundred years, of underselling the resurrection um, in recent history. Uh, it's been a bit too easy to just kind of tack it on at the end of uh, our focus on the cross. Uh, not because we don't value it at all, but it just tends to be overshadowed by the cross. Now, I recall when I first started my master's degree at the Bible College of South Australia, uh, we had a, a particular theology textbook uh, by a guy called Millard Erickson. Now, Erickson wasn't too bad in most respects, uh, if not exactly invigorating, but in a textbook of over a thousand pages, how many pages do you think were designated to the resurrection? One measly page. I'm quite happy to report that we no longer use Erickson at Bible College of South Australia. So today we're going to be thinking about the resurrection more specifically and considering how the resurrection should shape our thinking and our lives and to see if we can develop a firmer foundation than Evelyn and her nihilism. Uh, Please note, my my notes are more than one page. So we're already ahead of the curve. Thanks, Erickson. All right, um, just a quick disclaimer here. Um, What I'm talking about this morning... I'm basically going with the assumption that the resurrection was a genuine historical event that actually happened. Now, if that's that's something that you're still wrestling with, uh, was was the resurrection real? Was it a physical resurrection or a spiritual resurrection? If you're still asking those questions, please do keep asking them. There are great arguments uh, behind why we can have confidence in that historical, physical resurrection. But they're not the things I'm going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about with the assumption that there was a genuine, physical resurrection. Uh, resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, uh, in a little while, I'm going to get George back up to read uh, some sections from 1 Corinthians 15. But first, let's take a look again at these last few verses of Luke. Um, Now, I think you, like we have at Tonsley, have recently finished a a whole series on Luke. I'm just going to have a look at these last few verses for a moment. Because it's it's quite easy to let these verses just kind of uh, pass on by without a lot of thought. It's 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 kind of like the epilogue. Just everything's um, you know, it, it's quite familiar to us. Uh, the idea of the ascension after Jesus was resurrected, he hung around for forty days, did some cool stuff, and then he went off into heaven. Uh, it's like the final scene of a movie in some ways. All the drama has been resolved, and the protagonist rides off into the sunset. Roll the credits. But it turns out that the ascension, it's not just a happy ending, or really it's not even an ending at all. It's a major element of Christ's work. Now, we could happily spend hours talking about the ascension. I mean, I'd happily spend hours talking about the ascension. The crash volunteers might not be so happy. Um, but this morning, we're just going to pick up on a couple of little bits that are going to help us with the way that we think about the resurrection. First of all, um, the manner of the ascension is really important for us to note. 
verse 51 there, uh, it tells us that he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now, do you see the bit where he says he uh, unzipped his now unnecessary human body, stepped out of it, and descended into heaven as the pure spirit that he is, leaving behind a crumpled mansuit with instructions for the disciples of how to dry clean it? Uh, no, that's not there. Um, he actually ascended physically, didn't he? Um, in the flesh, he was taken up into heaven. Now, at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, uh, which we call the Incarnation. God the Son entered into history by being born as a human in the flesh. And if we fast forward 30-something years, we see that the Incarnation, it didn't stop with the Ascension. He didn't leave his humanity behind, nor will he. We can actually get a little bit more detail on this if we flick forward to Acts chapter 1. Uh, now, as you know, the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, um, they're written by the same guy, Luke. Um, they're basically part one and part two. Luke considered the ascension important enough to include it in both, both the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And if we look at um, Acts 1 there, there's a couple of extra details. Uh, listen to verses 10 and 11. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, I'd like to suggest at this point, uh, in full fairness to the disciples, that why do you stand here looking into the sky? It seems like a pretty unfair question, given the circumstances. Uh, but I digress. Uh, the point is that just as he was taken into heaven physically, so too will he return, physically, as God incarnate. Now, like I said, there's a lot more we could say about the ascension, about Christ reigning as the promised Messiah, about uh, him presenting himself uh, as sacrifice for us in the heavenly tabernacle, um, or about him sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. But the main takeaway for us, for our purposes this morning, is that if Christ ascended bodily and he will return bodily, then that physical resurrection genuinely matters. It wasn't temporary. It wasn't a brief stage that could be uh, discarded once it served its purpose. Uh, it, it was and is forever. The ascension, among many other things, it shows us that the resurrection matters because Jesus still is the resurrected Jesus. So with that being the case, how should we think about the resurrection? Once again, big question. But for today, I want us to think about how the resurrection shapes the way that we see the world, how it should shape the way that we live our lives. And for that, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians, to chapter 15, enormously long chapter. George is just going to read a couple of um, sections for us, and then we'll continue. So we're looking at um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that thus that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Verse 42 to verse 58. 42. So, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. All right. 
So clearly there's an awful lot going on in there in that chapter, um, and we've just only read portions of it. But it's going to help us with uh, our question of how we should think about the resurrection. So our first question to ask is, why does Jesus' bodily resurrection matter? Uh, We've seen in the last few weeks that, uh, well, a few weeks ago now, uh, that Luke was at pains to show us that his resurrection was indeed entirely physical. Uh, And the ascension, it shows us that it wasn't temporary. So why does it matter so much? Now, it's quite common for the resurrection to be treated as a proof uh, that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Uh, that the resurrection was the grand finale, uh, his, his most spectacular miracle, the great supernatural act which proved who Jesus was. Now, all of that is 100% true, but if we were to leave the resurrection at that, it would actually be a bit of an impoverished view of the resurrection, I think. There's a lot more going on than just that. Uh, you might also have heard the resurrection talked about in that it was a proof that uh, Christ's work on the cross was effective, uh, that the resurrection showed that the sacrifice of the cross was effective, and that Christ had provided redemption for his people, that he himself was vindicated. Now, once again, entirely true. But the resurrection is also more than just a mark of authenticity for the cross, like it was some sort of a a cosmic receipt that, yes, this has been done, here's the proof. Uh, Instead, the Bible shows us that the resurrection, it really is more than that. It's not just the receipt for the cross, it's actually what the cross paid for. Let's have a look at a few details uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 to spell that out a bit. Uh, First, you'll notice that the name Adam comes up a few times in this chapter. Uh, first in verse 22 and then later um, from verse 45. And to start with, Adam and Jesus are being contrasted in verse 21 and 22, aren't they? Where Adam is associated with death, Christ is associated with life and resurrection. Uh, but later in the chapter, it isn't just a direct contrast, is it? There's also some degree of equivalence between them. Uh, and Jesus is referred to as the second Adam or the last Adam. So what's going on with all these atoms? Uh, Paul isn't referring to Adam here only as an individual, um, just one guy that happened to be the first in line in the creation queue. Uh, rather, as the ancestor for everyone, Adam is here also as the representative of humanity, because what he did affected all of humanity, uh, all of humanity to come. In verse 21, it tells us that death came to humanity through one man, Adam, because his sin brought God's curse and judgment on all of humanity. Now, this is exactly what we read in Genesis 3, isn't it? That God punished Adam and Eve for their sin and ejected them from the garden so that they would no longer have access to the tree of life. So as the progenitor, as the first of all of humanity, Adam sinned, So, yeah, so Adam sinned, and that resulted in death for everyone. So in this sense, that contrast with Jesus is fairly obvious there, isn't it? Adam brought sin and death to all of humanity. Jesus' death and resurrection, it brings life to all of those who trust in him. Now, completely true, but there's more. Because Jesus isn't just contrasted with Adam. 
He's also called the last Adam. So there's some sort of equivalence between them. Let's work out what that is. So it comes down to Adam being the, the representative of humanity and setting the path for everything that would, everyone that would come after him. Now, that's exactly what Jesus also did. And over in uh, Romans 5, verse 14, Paul explicitly states that Adam was the pattern or type of the one to come, Jesus. But where Adam brought death, Jesus brought life. Adam, uh, Jesus is like Adam because he fundamentally and permanently altered humanity. I'm just going to adjust myself here. For those listening on the recording, I'm adjusting my microphone. Uh, Let's move on. But where Adam brought death, Jesus brought life. Um, Jesus is like Adam because he fundamentally and permanently altered humanity for all that would follow him. And he is the last Adam because he would bring humanity into its final, eternal, and perfect state. More on that one in a bit. So what does being the last Adam have to do with the resurrection? Uh, Well, it's right there for us in verse 20, and again in 23, where Paul talks of Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. Now, first fruits, you may recall, uh, it's a particular term used in the Old Testament for an offering to be brought before the Lord. Uh, If we were to turn to Leviticus 23, we'd see the instructions to the Israelites to bring the very first sheaf of grain uh, from the whole harvest as an offering to God. Now, the first fruits is the first of the harvest, but it also represents the whole of the harvest. It's a representative thing. So too it is with Christ's resurrection, Paul tells us. Christ is the first to be resurrected, but as the last Adam, as the representative of humanity, we know that those who come after him will likewise be resurrected. One of the main topics of uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the discussion of what kind of body will will be our resurrection body. And the answer Paul gives, it's a bit more conceptual than concrete. We're actually going to sidestep a lot of the details today because there's an involved discussion, uh, apart from a couple of points that we're going to make. First of all, Where these bodies we have currently, they're perishable, they're weak. Our resurrection bodies will be imperishable and glorious. Now, there's an easy mistake to be made here as well. Um, Where Paul talks about spiritual bodies, you may have noticed, it's tempting to to interpret that as being immaterial, uh, as though we will be some sort of pure spirits floating around are freed from physicality. Um, But that's not at all what he means, actually. Um, Remember, these resurrection bodies, they're still bodies. Uh, They're physical by definition. And we know know this because, well, we've seen one of these resurrection bodies in action before, haven't we? Uh, Jesus' body. After he was resurrected, we knew that he could be touched. We knew that he could eat and drink. And remember the empty tomb as well. Uh, this body, this resurrection body, it's not a completely brand new body. It's a transformation of the old body. So a spiritual body here, it's a physical body still, but it is empowered and is characterized 
by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's in the image of the risen Jesus Christ who is presently in heaven waiting to return. So if that's a little snapshot of the resurrection, uh, Jesus, having died on the cross on Good Friday, he was resurrected into new life on Easter Sunday, into a transformed and glorious resurrection body. And as the last Adam, his resurrection is the beginning, it's the model, and it's the guarantee of that same resurrection for all of those who turn to him, the people of the risen King. Now, it would also be understandable at this point to wonder if this isn't all just a little bit academic at this point. Um, on one hand, Jesus' resurrection, that happened close to 2,000 years ago. And then on the other hand, our own resurrection bodies, they still await us at some unknown point in the future. Uh, now, it's, it's kind of like my kids, uh, my boys in particular, who might like to, uh, to bound into our room first thing on a Monday morning and ask, what are we having for dinner on Saturday night? Uh, they're very keen to know the answer, but it really does nothing to change their life at all. And also, frankly, in our house, planning that far ahead is quite laughable. Um, so why is this resurrection business so important to us today, then? Uh, it'll help us to, uh, to zoom right out, I think. Um, let's look at the big picture. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden... Their fall into sin, it wasn't some unforeseen complication. Um, Adam and Eve in the garden, that was never supposed to be the end point of humanity and creation. Now, remember what I mentioned from uh, Romans 5.14, that Adam was the pattern of the one to come, Jesus? That Christ, he didn't come into the world just to fix it back to its original state. It wasn't some cosmic control-alt-delete, reboot the, reboot the universe, and hopefully it works better this time. Uh, he didn't come into the world just to correct what was broken. He also came to perfect what was incomplete and immature. So with that in mind, we can see that the focus of the resurrection it's not just on the women outside the tomb early on a Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, nor is it on the hilltop outside Bethany 40 days later, when Jesus ascended into heaven. As the last Adam, the first fruits of the new creation, the focus of the resurrection really should be on Revelation 21 and 22, isn't it? That final beautiful picture where we see the resurrected Christ reigning over his resurrected people in the new creation, forever and ever. This is the goal of all creation. It's its purpose and its destiny that Christ's work is bringing about. So when we see the resurrection, we see that new creation breaking through. And we can see our place in it as the people of the risen King. This is the great drama that's playing out on the grand stage of history throughout creation. That God, through the work of his Son and the Holy Spirit, is bringing into fruition in us and through us. We started this morning talking about Evelyn um, and her alternate selves across the multiverse. She concluded that uh, there is no meaning, so we just need to make meaning from those around us. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
it shows us our place in the great story, doesn't it? It shows us that the universe has meaning and purpose, but it has meaning and purpose given to it by its creator, Jesus Christ, who invites us to take part in that meaning and purpose. It is a great and beautiful thing to see our place in that story through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our risen Redeemer. That still leaves us with a question, though, doesn't it? Uh, To return to my boys and the dinner menu analogy, we may know what's for dinner next weekend, but how does that make any difference to our lives now? I am going to stop using that illustration now, because for the boys, it genuinely just makes no difference. Uh, They they beg to differ, but anyway. Um, For us, what does it mean to live in the light of the resurrection? Uh, Paul certainly thinks it makes a difference. Uh, Look at the last verse of the chapter with me. Verse uh, verse 58 in 1 Corinthians 15. Having gone through this whole extended discussion of Jesus' resurrection and ours, this is what he concludes. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. For Paul, this was a great motivation to stand firm and be confident that work in the Lord is valuable. If we were to look elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the same idea coming up. Uh, have a look at Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Uh, it should be on the screen. And Paul says here, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Again, this cosmic perspective, this understanding of Christ's resurrection and our place in it, shapes our whole frame of reference. It should color every aspect of our lives. So to finish this morning, let's look at applying these to a few specific areas. Uh, Again, this should apply to every aspect of our lives because it shapes the way that we see the world. But let's look at a few examples. First of all, this shapes the way that we see creation, doesn't it? Uh, Now, through history, physical creation has often gotten a bit of a bad rap. Uh, Douglas Adams, many of you may be familiar with, he was the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy novels. He put it like this. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people quite angry and has been widely regarded as a bad move. Now, he's been pretty facetious, obviously, um, but there's been a number of traditions throughout history, both within Christianity and outside of it, that see the physical world as evil. Uh, In the early centuries of the church, there was a movement known as Gnosticism, Uh, And it held that creation was evil, that physicality was evil, and that salvation lay only in transcending it, to becoming pure spirit. Now, some of the early church fathers, like Irenaeus and Tertullian, uh, they dedicated themselves to battling such a view. But it still has its echoes throughout the the centuries of history of the Christian church. But the resurrection, it tells us that view is bankrupt. 
Jesus has redeemed his people, not into disembodied spirits, but into a physical new creation, of which he is the cornerstone and the firstfruits. The resurrection tells us that just as God declared creation to be good in Genesis 1, the new creation is very, very good. It is part of who we are to live in creation, and caring for it is part of our mandate from the beginning. Just like our bodies, creation may be tainted and subject to decay, but it isn't destined for annihilation, but for spectacular renewal and redemption. So as humans, redeemed and belonging to the true and perfect human, Jesus Christ, let's take our creation mandate seriously in caring for it. Whether it's in our own personal habits and lifestyle, or if it's how we advocate and engage in politics, let's follow Christ's lead, who has shown us that creation is of great worth. The resurrection, uh, it should also move us to kingdom work as well, shouldn't it? To ministering to those around us. That last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, it isn't in vain, because we know we have a sure hope in Jesus' resurrection and in ours. Our work... uh, Our work is for a purpose that, under God, it will flourish in resurrection life. So as children of the resurrection, as the people of the risen king, let's serve each other gladly in the knowledge that what we do, whether it's setting up for church or teaching kids in the kids' program or sharing the gospel with those around us, it's not in vain. But to finish we also have a message of hope. We're here as Christ ambassadors, as representatives of his kingdom, which is already broken through and it awaits its final consummation in the new creation. When we see ourselves as part of that grand story, we have a sure hope ahead of us, a confidence that what is to come is perfect and glorious because of what we have already seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the last Adam and the first fruits of the new creation. So the resurrection drives out fear. We absolutely feel the heaviness of creation, groaning under the weight of sinful humanity, but we also know that it will be redeemed and made new. We lament the brokenness and pain in ourselves and in people around us because of sin. But we know that the resurrected Jesus and the hope that we have in him. There's a lot to lament in the world. um, And it's it's right and appropriate for us to lament the pain and suffering in a world that has turned away from God. But if that leads us just into despondency and despair then we haven't really understood the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope because of the new creation. It has broken through. His kingdom has begun. And just like the angels told the disciples on that hilltop outside of Bethany, he is coming back in the same way that he left. So with that message of hope, 
that clear picture of our place in God's great plan, in his grand story, I think the appropriate way for us to finish is to offer praise to our resurrected Lord. Join me in prayer. Father Almighty, we give you great praise for the great work that you have done in creation. Father, we see your resurrected Son. We see our place in your great story that you are playing out in the stage of creation. And we see the great gift that you have given us to be part of that great story, to be resurrected with Jesus. Father, help us to shape our lives around that. Through your Spirit, color our vision so that everything we see is in the light of the resurrected Lord as we focus on that great hope in the new creation. Help it to motivate us in everything we do as we speak and act and even think. Father, help us to long for that final day of the new creation where what we have seen started in your Son will reach its completion and we will live with you forever in the new creation. Father, we ask this in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.